The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes. These are the sorts of natural disasters movies are made from, because throughout history we've learned that natural disasters often become human disasters. And as tragic as they are, there's often nothing we can do but pick up the pieces and rebuild, then wait for the next one with crossed fingers. Or is there? How much are we contributing to the scale of the human toll of natural disasters when they hit? How much do our decisions about where to build and what to build and how to build impact the cost? Natural disasters are an inevitability of life on Earth. They will happen. But how do our actions make the toll paid better, or maybe much worse than it has to be? Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Robert Muirwood. He works on modeling the risk from disasters and working to identify how disaster risks can be managed and reduced. He has more than 25 years of experience working around the world on the risks from flood, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, and tsunamis. He's the head of research for the world's largest catastrophe risk modeling company, Risk Management Solutions. And he's here with me today to talk about his most recent book, The Cure for Catastrophe, How We Can Stop Manufacturing Natural Disasters. Robert, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you, and, and uh, I, I look forward to our conversation. So early on in the introduction, you say, I first became intrigued by the forensics of disasters while working as the science writer on a Royal Geographical Society expedition to the Karakoram Mountains of northern Pakistan. And that term, forensics of disasters, really caught me. Is that just a term you, you, you use, or is that a, a common term? Yeah, and I think this is a, a, a term which I, I use to, to explain this interface between science and and um, disasters how we can make sense of what causes disasters how we how we can learn to take action which will reduce the consequences of disasters and I mean disasters um, in the past in particular uh, they is there may be limited amounts of information about them so there is a sense that you that you you need some forensics to try and understand what really has happened what what has actually occurred, why, why it happened, why were certain people impacted, other people left unscathed. So all, all of that, I think, you know, it's, it's rather like uh, trying to solve a crime. It's, it's from the limited information that is available to, to make sense of actually what has happened. We do tend to think of natural disasters as these unavoidable big things that happen to us or that happen to the world that are out of our control. But the idea of forensics here kind of, I find, pushes up against that idea in my brain. It suggests that there are, are causes or at least partial causes that are, are within our control and that we should figure out what they are. Yes. I mean, the the subtitle of of this book, um, The Cure for Catastrophe, the subtitle is How We Can Stop Manufacturing Natural Disasters. And you know, that is intentionally it's a, a provocative uh, statement, if you like, but, um, but it's, it's trying to show that actually we know enough now to be able to anticipate a lot of the disasters which have the potential for happening. And, um, and with that knowledge, we, we are in a position where we can take action to significantly reduce the consequences and um a lot of the time when you look at what has happened in a in a big disaster and you you identify well why did those buildings fall down why were people in the path of the of the of the hurricane storm surge it's it's because of 
decisions that were taken around where people build, how people build, which were often taken naive about the risks that existed and and that and that could have been foreseen. I mean, increasingly, the idea that a disaster is is something that occurs out of the blue. In 99 out of 100 times, that's not the case. It's it's something which actually we could have anticipated if we had if we had focused on ask, asking the right questions. Yeah, there definitely is this tension of there's a, a thing in the world we can't control. Obviously, we can't control when and where an earthquake happens, but we can control a lot of stuff, such as where we decide to build things or how we decide to build things. Yes, I mean absolutely, and it, and it makes a huge difference. I mean, if we if we look at, um, at earthquakes, which might be very much the same size, um, and um, I mean, in in recent years, an, an example is the the earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand, in 2011, and the um, and the earthquake of a similar magnitude six to magnitude seven size in Haiti in 2010, and the Haiti earthquake. I mean, we. We don't really know how many people died, but it, you know, there, there are estimates up to a quarter of a million people killed in that. And in in New Zealand, it was it was I think around a hundred, and um, and and even even those casualties were, were largely caused by just the collapse of two of two badly built 1960s buildings. Um, so there, there's a huge opportunity uh, with the right decisions around what to build, where to build. We can make an enormous difference in the outcome of disasters um, if, you, if, if we can apply that knowledge effectively. Something that I hadn't really thought about before, but now after reading your book makes perfect sense, is that after some kind of, of disaster, like an earthquake or a flood, um, there's uh, some there's obviously some science that gets done. Uh, I'm assuming scientists sort of descend upon the location to try and learn what they can learn, both about the natural part of the event, so the earthquake the flood, but also what kinds of um, lessons learned can we take from how we built things or the structures that were in place uh, or just what happened at the time that we can maybe try and, and mitigate for future catastrophes? Yes, I mean, the, I mean the, this is all part of the forensics, if you like. It's actually, um, I mean, people do, scientists, engineers um, will come in the aftermath of a disaster to, to try and see what can be learned from it and um, it's it's always it's always quite difficult things are very chaotic it may be very hard to travel around um, but but there is the opportunity to see at first hand to learn from it um, I mean increasingly that learning is is a repeat of, of, of what has probably been learned from from previous from previous events I mean you're what we learn from the, the latest earthquake in Mexico, for example, may be very similar to what we already had learned from a, from an earthquake 30 or 40 years ago. It's sort of you know the lessons they're often not new. Sometimes that we are we are testing new kinds of buildings that have been built in the past 20 or 30 years, but often it's the the older structures, the older structures which were built without um, without engineers, for example, which which proved to be most Dangerous and and you know, the this field work that that takes place. Um, I mean, it's 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 an important part of the learning process. I mean, I think it's really important part of I mean, of of for a young engineer or young hazard scientist going and and seeing what happened, what has happened in a in a significant um, disaster is incredibly instructive. It's you know, it's it's a really important part of the learning process. You you discover things 
which which you would never have thought were significant unless you had been there. I mean, it's it's also I mean it's also becoming a bit of a challenge now that actually so many people want to turn up after a disaster, um, and you know there there is a sense that actually this is this is not appropriate. Um, this this you know this is is getting slightly out of control, and I mean I'm not quite sure how we do control it, but it is still a fundamental component of how we learn and and is from this learning from this science that actually we can take actions which will reduce the consequences of future disasters. It must be quite a thing as an engineer to walk into a space like that after an earthquake and see the result of something that maybe you might have built and how it was either able to withstand that kind of natural disaster or maybe how it didn't and how exactly it failed. That must be really both a difficult thing, a fascinating thing, a really instructive thing for in particular engineers to look at. Yes, yes. I mean it's it's all all of those. I mean it is, as I say, it's a it's a really powerful lesson and uh, and you you will be surprised by by things. I mean one one um addition to to our knowledge which has just been coming through in the in the last um few years is is um it's actually what a disaster Actually, feels like live. I mean, we've you know, in, in up until a few years ago, everything we we learn about disasters has come. I mean, in in the immediate aftermath, has come from a a television film crew will will turn up, um, and they'll t- they'll typically turn up twelve hours or twenty four hours after the earthquake has hit, and so you're you're seeing a situation which um, yeah, you're, you're people people are. Coping to different degrees, there'll be some rescue going on, but you, you'll you'll see things quite far removed from actually what happens in a disaster itself. And, and uh, you know, we now have mobile phone footage of of w- what it's like to actually be in the midst of the earthquake um, or the hurricane itself. I mean, you know, we, we there was, for example, in Mexico um, last year, there were, there was um, footage of of buildings actually falling down of, of, of people rushing out into the street and then turning their cell phone cameras on and actually you know, a building was shuddering and then fell and i think that is a, is another layer of of additional knowledge which we simply haven't had i mean unless you've actually been through a disaster yourself you will never see have seen a building fall down now we have really interesting and important and um real-time information on it or of, of actually what that is like, how buildings do collapse. So I want to talk about some of the specific kinds of catastrophes we face, and in particular, uh, which is a topic you return to regularly in the book, how some of the decisions we make as people, how the policies we put in place, how sometimes our decisions to build in certain places and in certain ways can impact how severe those catastrophes can be from our perspective. So I think probably one of the best places to start is in the same place you start in the book, which is talking about tsunamis and floods, and in particular, our confidence in walls. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, this is. I mean, I I deliberately started with this topic about about building a wall to protect us against flooding because it, it highlights the why this is not as straightforward as as it might seem to offer protection to people. And um, you might think, you know, a a flood wall is a simple thing; it'll save us from floods. But actually, one challenge with a flood wall is that uh, if you build one, people 
will assume that actually it is going to give them protection. And actually, um, the decision about how high to make that wall or how strong to make that wall will have been taken uh, as a result of available knowledge, some trade-offs of the cost of, of, of uh, building the wall with how how high to make it. And um, the two examples uh, which I fold together, one one of um, Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans and, and the other of the situation on the Pacific coast of Japan. In, in, in both cases, um, government agencies built walls um, in, and, um, and people, um, many people assumed that the wall would protect them. And the, you know, the situation in, in Katrina was that a lot of people stayed in the city of New Orleans um, even after they, they'd been told they should evacuate. They stayed because they assumed that actually um, nothing was going to happen. And um, and in fact, you know, as we know, the city was flooded. Around 1,500 people died as a result of the flooding because they were they were trapped in single-story houses. They couldn't escape through through the roof. And um, and you know, if you ask, well, why were the the flood the, the flood walls built to the height they were it was some it was you know it, it was a a human uh, a set of human decisions some trade-offs around around cost and actually how high they should be and um, we had the situation in Japan in 2011 which was even even more uh, impactful in terms of the of the loss of life where the government had actually built tsunami walls along um, for the principal towns along the Pacific coast of, of Japan. And, and again, when the, the question came, well, how high should they build the tsunami walls? They simply looked at actually how high some previous tsunamis had been along this coastline and made a judgment about, you know, if you build them five meters high, that, that should be good enough. But then a lot of people had come to live behind the tsunami walls, assuming they offered complete protection. And we we had the situation in the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that the tsunami actually came in about twice the height of the walls in a number of towns. And um, as a result, around 20,000 people died, um, many of them many of them because they had not evacuated. They had about 20 or 25 minutes between when the earthquake came and when the tsunami arrived. So they could have, most of those people could have evacuated. They chose not to because they assumed they would be they would be protected and and you have a situation where if there had been no tsunami walls and you know, an example is the coast of Chile where they also have big tsunamis there are no tsunami walls along the coast of Chile everybody knows if you feel a strong earthquake you you get out of your house and you run up up the up the cliff path um, as as fast as you can and um, and uh, so having having walls actually increased the number of people who died, in fact, as a result, simply because they assumed they were going to be protected. So it sounds like walls sort of do two things. One is it seems like it encourages people to build in those areas where if there weren't walls in place, we'd probably tend to more stay away from them, uh, only build there if we absolutely had to rather than looking to build there as a safe space. And also when something does happen, we're overconfident in the wall's ability to protect us from that. And then we don't take the proper precautions to to evacuate, to move to high ground um, that we 
should take because of that sort of overconfidence in the wall's ability to kind of stave off disaster. So it sounds like there's sort of two pieces to of this. One is, is we build more in those spaces. So there's more people there. And then also a sort of mental math that we do when we decide whether to stay or to flee. And, uh, we, we tend to flee less often if we have, if we have a wall that we think protects us. Yes. I mean, the, the, the both those factors are are are, are going on were going on in japan and clearly uh, it, it is it is a big a big challenge i mean it, it highlights this this problem that actually you know, governments would like to intervene to help um prevent the consequences of disasters but it's it's quite a, it's quite a difficult and subtle thing about well, how do you intervene in ways which are guaranteed really to be successful that that that, that um don't have secondary consequences of of some form, and um, uh, there there are there are many ways in which people do things. The the I mean I'll I'll give you another example of these of um, of of these these sort of secondary complications. I mean the in a number of South American cities the um, the there are areas of very steep land or there are areas which are are regularly flooded, so so the city chooses not to build on them. But that means that informal settlements move in and occupy the land instead, and uh, and and then the, the people in informal settlements are often um, you know, they may be least well informed about about the, the potential for disasters. They may be in buildings which themselves are very dangerous. Uh, you have situations in in some South American cities where the the government to help the people who are, have these informal unofficial unofficial shantytown um buildings that actually they they help them by offering them bricks to to build their houses with because they are they're less likely to fall down in a rainstorm but that actually means that they they are loading up the potential for a a future a really devastating future earthquake I mean, of, of the kind that actually happened in uh, in Haiti. Again, the Haiti earthquake, the worst impacted sectors were these informal settlements where they'd built in ravines on the edge of the city in land which which officially was considered unsuitable for for building. And so, and but, but without the ability to police it to, to prevent people building there, it simply meant that the poorest people made the most dangerous uh, unofficial buildings in these in these specific um, high-risk locations. It does seem like there's this tension as well between who builds in some of these locations in places like Haiti, as you say, uh, if those areas are considered risky, then it tends to be the most at-risk or disadvantaged people who choose to live there, perhaps because there's nowhere else for them they feel they can live. Whereas in, in parts of North America, for example, we have people building beach houses um, on beaches, they get regularly flooded or impacted by storm surges. And those tend to be sometimes some of the wealthiest people that are building in those locations just for the prestige of it or for the, the ocean views that they get from their windows. Yes. I mean, the, so, so yeah. So, so then, then we have, I, I would say, some, some issues, some uh, different, some, some contrasting issues about, about um, you know, are, are people free to, to build in the highest in high risk locations and you know, do they expect the rest of the rest of the world the rest of society to 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 bail them out when when things go wrong and um the the question of the beach house is a is a good example of this in um in in terms of um i mean 
it's 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 hard to stop someone building a property in a location which you may know is 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 high risk. I mean, they you know the, the, these are perils um, like hurricane storm surge where there probably will be some warning. So this may not be a risk of of, of loss of life, but it certainly will be a risk to their property. And um, you know, do they expect the system to to compensate them for the fact that they've they've chosen to live in a in a delightful but 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 extremely dangerous um, location, and um, it's it's it is it is it is hard to um, generalize about this question. I mean, do do we find situations where the poorest, where the most disadvantaged people end up in the highest risk locations? Because we see that. I mean, the situation in New Orleans, for example, um, was that the the city had been flooded the previous time in in 1965 in in, in the aftermath of Hurricane Betsy, and um, and people had learned then that the lowest parts of the city had the highest amount, highest depths of flood water, and um, it became very it became almost impossible to sell those properties um, because uh, the flooding had become so notorious that they were they were they were used just for rental. They were not improved at all, and so they tended to be the people who live there tended to be the the old, the old and the infirm and um and and most at risk least likely to evacuate so there we have a situation i mean as with the the barrios in uh, in south american cities where the the high you know the poorest people are end up in the highest risk locations but then you've got the other end of it where you've got you know situations where where the highest risk locations in florida are right along the beachfront and actually and you know they are they're also going to be the most expensive locations too. So you have these sort of t- two ends of the spectrum who, who are by intent or or by accident find themselves in the highest risk uh, situations. So I am interested to talk about insurance because this was a big uh, topic in the book, both the history of insurance, which I didn't know about that was fascinating in its own right, but also some of the challenges the insurance industry faces when it comes to natural disasters and who ends up kind of picking up the dime when an insurance company or the insurance industry can't cope with the amount of claims that come out of a major national disaster. So can you maybe give us a little flavor of some of the history of how insurance came to be? It's something that we all think about as just like a normal part of life now, but it's it's not actually that old. Yes. I mean, I mean, I I wanted to fold in, I mean, I wanted to fold in in the story of insurance into this, exactly because um, the, the, it is it is not very well known it's 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 you know, it's, it's probably not very well respected and uh, it's an important component of uh, of this story of our response to to disasters you know, as as important as you know the, the scientific knowledge that has been gained about w- what determines earthquakes or or how how do hurricanes um how, how do hurricanes actually move over the over the ocean so so um insurance um was was founded in the in the uh, late 17th century in the in the 1680s or 90s um as the first insurers appeared and um I mean they appeared in particular they appeared in the aftermath of the great fire of london which was in 1666 and um and i mean in to, to many um there are many ways of thinking about it where where you can see that actually it provided it provided the perfect environment for for insurance to take off but because here you had uh, they they rebuilt the city of London um, out of brick and tile in in place of the wood and thatch that existed before when the city burned down. So they they deliberately took action to really improve the standard of the buildings, 
And that meant that the, the level of risk uh, in terms of the risk of your building being destroyed by fire was much lower than people, people um, typically appreciated. I mean, the, you had a situation where the fear of fire was actually much higher than the actual level of risk of fire. And that is the perfect environment, if you like, to, to actually um, set off insurance in the, if it became possible to establish um, two or three insurance companies, which actually would offer protection for, for, a, for a price. You pay a premium and then in the event your, your building burns down, you'll get compensation for it. And, and um, you know, this was the idea. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an, it's a really interesting, it's quite a radical idea. And actually, uh, and, um, and it worked. And, uh, and, um, these companies, you know, some of these companies were still around two or three hundred years later, some of the original found, founding companies. And, and this, you know, the, the idea is, is sort of still the same today. Um, the, 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 the idea of covering disasters, um, first, um, turned up at the very end of the 19th century and then, then got going through the 20th century that, that it was, you know, the idea, again, this was a really radical idea that you could protect your, <clears throat> your building through insuring it against, um, hurricane or, or earthquake. And, um, and that took off. And, and you know, to start with, the, the you can see the um, the way it was being covered was actually pr- pretty expensive. But actually, no one knew what the true the true cost of risk should be. But it meant that insurers had to think about these ideas of of the cost of risk, um, and that was really novel. And the the apparatus they developed for for thinking about risk required understanding the history of of previous events. In a given region, so if you were insuring a, a, a property in an island in the Caribbean, you'd want to know well how 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 many earthquakes have we had over the previous two or three hundred years? How many hurricanes? How how likely was this building to get damaged? What was its vulnerability or its susceptibility to loss? So the basic um, framework, the basic way of thinking about how we break down the this problem of of understanding risk into its component pieces, which we consider. The hazard, if you like, how, how often we expect the wind to be above some level, how often the shaking is above some threshold, and the exposure. So what is actually the nature of the building? Um, how is it built? What is this roof constructed out of, out of? And then, and then what is the vulnerability, which is how much damage we can expect the building would be subject to at a given wind speed, at a given level of ground shaking? That idea sort of emerged out of insurance industry thinking around how to handle catastrophes through the middle part of the 20th century. And, um, and, and then what happened was that, um, that, that insurers are in, and, and what are called reinsurance companies and reinsurance companies simply insure insurers. They, they if an insurer finds they have too much, um, too much potential loss in one particular area, they will, they will transfer. They will themselves buy insurance of a reinsurer. So, and reinsurers are, are very concerned with how they build up a, a, a book of business, how they build up business around the world to balance the potential for losses in one area with 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 other areas which would would not expect to be suffering losses at the same time. So, th- this was this was progressing and expanding through the 60s and 70s and the 80s, but but it was increasingly coming under under um, increasingly finding itself in trouble because the events that happened were not simply repeats of events which had happened in history. They were, they were new to some degree and, and 
some of these events, in particular, um, a couple of hurricanes in 1989, one called Hugo, one called Andrew in 1992, they caused such high losses uh, that that they started uh, that insurers started going out of business because they couldn't pay their claims, and the, and there was a realization that actually you couldn't simply you couldn't simply found um, a way of actually running catastrophe insurance by only looking at what had happened over the previous few decades. There had to be a better way of uh, of making sense of how to think about the risk. We'll be back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Insurance policies for anybody who's ever read one, and I'm sure many people have had uh, the time in their life where they've had to purchase an insurance policy for a home as tenant insurance, car insurance is another good example. Sometimes if you, when you read the fine print, you realize that there's actually exclusions that can be built in, particularly focusing on some of these kind of natural disasters, floods, um, earthquakes, uh, things like that. And I presume that in some situations, those are there because the insurance company can't really calculate the risk or isn't able to take on that risk. But also, um, I'm also curious as to how that plays out once those kinds of disasters actually happen. It seems like insurance in particular during a massive disaster or catastrophe, that that gray zone becomes a lot less easy to defend from a PR standpoint. Well, the, um, so yes, I mean, you, you, I mean, obviously, ideally, there's, you know, there's how insurance should work. The actuality is, 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 is going to be a little messier in terms of, uh, of reading the small print. Um, and, um, I mean, there, there, there is, there is now a recognition that, um, that this is a problem, that the, it, it is a problem that, um, that if you measure the the impact of disasters, I mean, if you simply if you looked at the economic impact of disasters and you compare what what is the economic cost um, as compared with how much has been paid by insurance, insurance is you know, is paying a a only a a, a proportion maybe twenty or thirty percent um, of of the total loss, maybe maybe more than that in 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 some situations some perils and and. Um, that is you know, that um, is not very satisfactory in terms of 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 the the utility of insurance, which which is uh, that you know, if it's working effectively, it can help people get back on their feet, get their lives back together um, you know, as as soon as possible after some loss has happened. And um, so there, I mean, there, there is currently a a movement uh, focused around uh, around. Um, Trying to shrink what is called what is called in slightly marketing terms the protection gap. So the protection gap is is that which is not being picked up by insurance. And and um, I mean it's it's you know it's it's um, it's a very interesting area I think. And um, it's it's I mean if if we look around the world at actually at this protection gap, I mean the best situations are. Um, are in countries where all you have one kind of insurance which covers you for all the potential perils. So, 
That's the situation that we find in the UK. We find it in France. We find it in some other European countries. Um, and uh, it's, it's very, you know, th- th- there are not going to be significant exclusions that tell you you don't, you're not covered against earthquake or flood. And, um, and the protection gap. So this gap as to what is, what is not insured in such cases can be quite small, can be down to, only five, five or ten percent of the total loss. Um, while at the other end, we have situations like earthquake in California is perhaps the most notorious, where where the um, the proportion for, for for the residential sector, the proportion that is covered by insurance, is is probably only ten or fifteen percent of the of the total the total cost of a disaster, and that clearly is you know is 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 really um, somewhat intolerable in, term, in terms of, um, of the function of insurance to, to help um, protect people in society. I'm assuming a lot of the times when uh, private insurance companies that exist either don't cover the damage or the losses or can't cover the damage or losses, that in a lot of situations, governments step in in order to help people recover from these kinds of things. Yes, I mean governments step in. I mean this this again is 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 a, can be a challenge. I mean if if you if you know the government's going to step in, then you won't buy insurance. And so I mean the situation <laughs> we have in in Italy, Italy is the example where where almost no one the the take up rate of of if you want earthquake insurance or or flood insurance as a homeowner in Italy, then you've got to buy it as a separate coverage, and almost no one bothers to buy it because they assume. The government will bail them out in a disaster, and in, and in you know, typically the government has sort of more or less bailed people out in disasters. But actually, um, it's not written, that, you know, that is not a contractual arrangement. That is simply a, a, a tradition. And um, and you know, we know there are potential disasters in Italy, um, potential earthquakes in particular, which could be so large in terms of their losses that actually you know, the government would be very stretched to actually. Um, to actually compensate for everybody, so um, I mean, as long as Italians assume that the government will step in, and Italians have been assuming this for the last two thousand years, even in the Roman times, they sort of assumed that if you had a disaster, the government would uh, step in. If you, if you, if that's what you believe, then actually you're not going to buy insurance. I've also heard that there's some uh, places in the U.S. where homes just keep getting rebuilt over and over and over um, after flood damage or storm surge damage, in part uh, due to just there, there is no flood insurance that those people can buy, and they also can't move. So we just kind of cover them to get them back up to where they were, and then wait for the next storm to hit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's this. I mean, you have more more politics around this. I mean, um, it's it's quite hard to separate um, catastrophes from from politics, and um, you 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 have the situation in in the U.S. where 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 originally um, insurers um, were were hit by an enormous flood event in 1927 on the Mississippi River and it was so vast that um the the, the insurance industry said actually we're not going to cover flood anymore is this simply the loss is too big and it's and it's totally it's totally dependent on actually whether the government has has built its its flood defenses high enough or not and um so, so therefore, you know, we, we will exclude it. And then in the 1960s, there were big floods in America, including this flooding of New Orleans in Hurricane Betsy in 1965. And, um, and the government then, then had to, to step in and actually set up a, a, a federal 
flood insurance program, um, in, in, which which was um, administered by by private insurers, but was ultimately a government scheme. And um, and in order to in order to get this started, in order to avoid a political backlash. They simply said to everybody who 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 had a um, a building already uh, which existed in a defined flood zone, they just simply told them that she, they shouldn't worry. They would get a subsidized rate. They would get a cheap rate for their flood coverage, a rate which was less than the the technical cost of the risk, and um, that um, and they shouldn't worry. And actually, and, and so it's it's being called this system is called grandfathering where where any 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 pre-existing building was giving subsidized risk costs and those subsidized risk costs proved impossible to take away and there was an attempt in in four or five years ago to remove the subsidy and it was such a there was such an out, outcry that uh, they had the the um the government had to um reverse their decision on it so there's sort of this this is this was a a consequence of of um, the difficulty of of trying to uh, um, apply a system uh, uh, apply some sort of insurance system where people may have had expectations that the state would would um, anyway look after them and uh, in, you know, in in order to make this accepted this this uh, this ruling had to be made which which meant that the insurance system as a whole was never able to 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 balance the books, I mean, and and the, this national flood insurance program in the U.S. has had to borrow somewhere around twenty billion dollars off the government to pay its claims, um, simply because they were never accumulating enough enough premium, enough flood insurance costs to to pay for all the potential losses. So there's these sort of hidden subsidies at work that are making this problem in some areas really difficult to get out of. I mean, I guess the question is, is why don't the next time these places flood, we instead provide people with the money they need to relocate rather than rebuild? Um, yes, I mean, you, 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 can, you can try doing that, but actually... Min- Many of them may not want to relocate, and you know the, the question is: Are you going to force people to to um, to move at that point? I mean, are you going to take away their flood insurance? So we have we have the situation um, in the in the Bahamas, um, which which is instructive because the Bahamas has very much the same climate as as um, southern Florida, the same hurricanes, um, but um, it has a completely different insurance system. It has a it has a system where where um, your insurance, your standard homeowner's insurance, covers both wind and flood, and um, and it also it also has no no government backstop. So if you can't get insurance, that's that's too bad as 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 far as as far as the situation concerns. So we we have um, the situation at some communities, in particular one called Queens Cove on the northern shore of Grand Bahama, which is which is. A canal estate is where, where um, canals have been cut, and the land which has been dug out has been used to raise raise the ground, and then houses have been built on this raised ground. Um, but, but the the actual elevation of the properties is is less than a meter above sea level, and uh, these p- properties have flooded repeatedly and in storm surges from passing hurricanes, and uh, to the point where actually it was it, the insurers said, well, you, you can't buy insurance here anymore. It's actually the risk is too high. And that meant that uh, without insurance, you couldn't get a mortgage, and houses started to become abandoned. And um, and But on the edge of this area, or the, or the area of Abandoned properties. Um, some people realise that if you if you raise the property up on concrete stilts, as a upper floor, then actually you you could bring it back to 
to being insured again, to getting a mortgage again, and and uh, and and I, I feel this this story of actually what has been happening. It's 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 instructive about what we can expect to be happening around sea level rise and and um, as as anticipated through um, through warming and um, yeah, and a number of cities along all around the world, but in particular on the U.S. East Coast are, are faced with the with the recognition that actually the sea you know, the, the sea level is rising, that actually extreme extreme water levels are becoming more common, and um, and this is threatening the pre-existing property. And you know we we have we have the whole challenge as to is that going to be a government responsibility? Is it going to fall back on individuals? How, how is flood insurance going to function? Does flood insurance simply run out at some point when the risk gets too high? So. So um, a lot of places, uh, a lot of coastal communities are going to be going through the same challenges on this issue, and uh, and you know, it's it's being it's being tested already in in a number of locations along the U.S. coast. And I mean, Miami is a particularly interesting one because you can't simply build flood walls there because the rock on which the city is built is so porous. The water comes through comes through on. Un- underground caves if you like and and a, a wall so it simply doesn't keep the water out and we also have situation like southern louisiana south of uh, new orleans where the where the land is sinking um uh, almost three times as fast as the sea level is rising so this is so as experience the experience of the water level rise from sea level is 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 um is happening much faster than than for typical cities around the world and they are having to work out how to cope when to when to relocate communities when um when to to try and build a flood defense and and all the time in all these decisions uh which are being taken around around the, the more ordinary flood events, we know sooner or later there's going to be a, re, a, a a big hurricane and a big storm surge through southern Florida, just as we know, there's going to be big storm surge events through southern Louisiana, and it's in these really, in these extreme events that um, that all these decisions around flood walls or raising buildings, it's then that they're going to be tested. And um, you know, we clearly don't want to discover, or we you know, we we hope we won't discover another situation like that of Katrina, like that of the the, the flood, the tsunami walls in Japan, where simply a decision had been taken about what level of protection to provide, but actually the level of protection was not adequate up against a particular catastrophic event. One of the other things I wanted to talk about a little bit was the idea of mass evacuations, in particular for things like uh, hurricanes coming in. Obviously, there are parts of the world that have built around volcanoes where uh, that's a real risk, obviously an uncommon one around the world, but um, a real risk for certain types of communities and how we make decisions about when to evacuate, how far ahead to evacuate, because evacuating a community is a challenge. Evacuating a huge city is, I can just imagine a logistical nightmare to try and and run that evacuation safely and make sure you provide enough time that people can get out safely and effectively before the disaster hits. But also, you don't want to evacuate people needlessly either. Yeah, I mean, the, the I mean, evacuation is clearly an, appro- an appropriate response to certain kinds of disasters. Um, and um, the most challenging situation is is around, as you identified, is around volcanic eruptions, um, and uh, you know it's why it's so challenging is is that um, you know, there is 
It's unlikely ever to be a dress rehearsal for this. It's you know, it's 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 going to happen for real. Um, you you are going to have to have somebody in charge of of making decisions around evacuation, who has almost certainly never done this before. Um, you know, who's, who's, these these events are sufficiently infrequent that actually um, you know, almost certainly this will be the first time they've done it. It'll be hugely political. In that, uh, you know, if you if you demand that a that a city you know, a city like Naples next to the volcano Vesuvius, if you demand that it ev- evacuates, that's gonna you know that's gonna gonna have a huge impact on the local economy, on on manufacture, on supermarkets, on banks, um, everything, and um, and people are going to be very reluctant to do it. If you, you, know, you may evacuate people because you think there's there's signs the volcano is coming back to life, but you don't actually know when it's going to erupt, so you may evacuate people too early, and in which case they'll start drifting back again when nothing happens for a few days, and then you know, they may be in the path of the event when it does happen. You may not evacuate people far enough, so how far away from volcano you're going to evacuate people is 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 going to be a bit of a guess, and you may get it wrong. The, the eruption may be much bigger than you thought it was going to be. Um, it's 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 almost a no-win situation, and there's no you, know, you could see, you know, maybe there should be some international agency that is helping countries in this area because they're going to find themselves, you know, there is, there is international expertise amongst volcanologists, but actually they're going to find themselves on their own, on their own when it comes to taking decisions. And, you know, we have examples in the 20th century, we have examples in the Caribbean of, of, um, one eruption um, in in the French territories in I think 1900-1901 when when the the, the local governor um, of on the on the island of Martinique at the city of Saint Pierre he the local governor just wanted to calm people down and told everybody don't worry and um, you know it, it's it's fine we'll, we'll be safe and then and and then the whole city was destroyed by the eruption and only one one prisoner incarcerated deep in a dungeon survived and you have that situation and you have the opposite situation in the in the 1970s in the neighboring island of Guadeloupe where where a scientist um, a scientist demanded an evacuation took place and and I think more than 100,000 people did evacuate from a a region of the island and again caused the significant economic impact and then there was no eruption at the end of it the volcano shuddered a bit uh, some steam came out and then it it it, uh, Went back to its dormancy again. Everybody had to, sh- to shuffle back. So it is absolutely—it's really hard to think of w- w- you, ha- how to manage this in a way which is which is going to be successful. And you know, we we haven't there hasn't been a significant uh, volcano going off in the in a in an urbanized area um, at all since since you know for 25 years now. So this is this is something which you know, this is exactly the kind of disaster as it has not been on the, uh, it's, it's not been on a high profile it's not um, people are not thinking about it uh, significantly it's exactly the kind of disaster we can anticipate uh, at some point in the in the not too distant future volcanoes i think are are interesting because they so, are so unpredictable and so difficult to gauge as to whether or not people should or shouldn't evacuate but even things that we're a bit better at predicting for example hurricanes and storm surges uh quite often when we do provide evacuation notices and, and require people to evacuate there is definitely a, a non-trivial number of people who either can't evacuate under their own power they have nowhere to go or aren't able or are mobile um or people who just refuse to leave 
leave. Uh, so there's uh, that sort of extra bit in evacuation as well, where I think we overestimate our ability to weather the storm uh, in a lot of those situations. Um, yes, yes. I mean, the um, I mean, clearly it requires a lot of a lot of management and anticipation of how, how you're going to organize it, and every evacuation is going to be a little bit different as to which areas are going to be impacted. I mean, one one particular problem I, I identify around evacuation is the um, the crying wolf problem. I mean, the idea of of crying wolf of the the boy who's looking after the sheep who who just gets bored and who starts shouting out wolf wolf, and so the villagers turn up and then then um and then they get bored they they get fed up with him so they ignore his cries and then eventually uh, when a wolf does turn up and he shouts wolf wolf no one bothers to come and help and uh, the, the the crying wolf problem is is a significant one for evacuations because um we think that you know if if you have an evacuation of a city and nothing happens we think well that's that's good news isn't it but actually it, it always has um, a pervasive impact on those who, who evacuated because some of them, some proportion of them will simply say, well, actually, next time I won't bother because uh, last time nothing happened. I mean, we had the situation in um, in 2004, Hurricane Ivan hit the edge of New Orleans and there was, there was an evacuation of the city, but nothing happened. And so when Katrina came the following year, a, a number of people just ignored the, ignored the warning because the last time you know, there had been there had been the crying of wolf and um we we have to measure the 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 cost of of the situation where you over evacuate people in terms of actually how many lives will be lost in the future but, um or how many lives or um as a result of people who just won't evacuate because their last experience was nothing happened so yeah that that's that's um part of the challenge of of managing disasters is to get that balance right is to not uh, start over evacuating people you do talk a little bit in the book about some places where they do have a, a good mix of policy and culture around certain disasters that they're more prone to. Um, the Netherlands was one of the examples that you use that they have a long history of having to deal with floods um, because of the way that they're structured and the way that they're built. And they've actually created and sort of built that into their, their culture and the way that they create policies around um, flooding. So can you talk a little bit about the Netherlands and how from a lot of perspectives. They're a bit of a success story about getting a good mindset around disasters that can happen to your your community. Sure. So, so in in in, in looking around the world, in find in trying to find places where people have developed the the appropriate um, cultural response to to integrate um, the, the the potential for disasters in, into how they live, how they function. In you know, the 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 number. You know, if I was awarding. The number one country, I think, for for really integrating disaster management uh, in, into their culture is the Netherlands, and um, this this goes back to how how effectively the country was created in a, in a delta of the of the Rhine by um, by by actually um, cutting out um, channels to to um, let the water drain and actually creating new new farmland, and uh, I mean right the way back to the 16th century. They were faced by by big storm surge floods coming in from the from the North Sea, and in a single night they could lose lose thousands of uh, of, of hectares of of land, and then would slowly try and and um, recapture it again over the following decades. I mean, they be one one part of their system was that um, they they had a ruling that that um, who 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 whoever land the the 
the flood can take. I mean, it was their job to protect it, so so that you you had to manage the the flood defense that protected your land. And they had a they had um, someone would come round called the dike count, who would, whose job it was was to check that your your flood defense was in good condition and to point out you know where it was defective or too low or or was eroding and actually demand that you make uh, you make improvements to it and actually they would then come back a few months later and actually if you hadn't made the improvements they could confiscate your land uh, if you wanted to get money to to raise the defense then they might be the only source of funds and they would charge a high interest rate so so it was quite a punitive system but it was very effective in it in it really you know, over time and if you looked at the battle with that with storm surge floods you could say that in the sort of 14th and 15th centuries that the, the you know, the Dutch were sort of losing losing land faster than they could reclaim it. But actually, by the 17th century, they'd really got on top of it. They created windmill-powered flood um, pumps and, um, and 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 a whole system of of where the the management of the of the of the flood defences was sort of everybody's problem. They didn't just have a didn't just have a small group of experts who were in charge of managing their disasters. It was everybody's function. The whole village. And they have stories of when the when the defense is breached, the whole village turns out. Everybody everybody comes along that uh, some women are using their aprons to carry clay in to actually help put into the gap in the defense. So it was it was it was collectively owned. It was you know then the whole of sort of Dutch culture even today is 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 has emerged out of this this flood management um System and uh, for, for 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 where it's everybody's problems, what they call polder culture, which is that everybody, you know, you all have to work together to to collectively um, surmount the the threat, the threat of of floods. And they and then and they really, you know, I mean, they've done a fantastic job at this. I mean, they're now you know now the Dutch are going around the world actually marketing their expertise at flood risk management in deltas in into other other delta regions around the world there's also been some uh, there's also been some successes in chile on uh, creating buildings to withstand earthquakes because they're in a very earthquake prone part of the world and have definitely had to learn how to create infrastructure that can withstand something that happens to them quite regularly yes i mean in in chile if you look at sort of you know which if in in terms of of measuring danger as what is the chance you, know, you you will be killed by an earthquake in different countries of the world through the 20th century. You find that at the start of the 20th century, Chile was one of the most dangerous countries because it was extremely earthquake afflicted. I mean, it's got a very, very active plate boundary running underneath it. Um, and um, yeah, it's a very long, thin country, all, all of which is facing this, this plate boundary. Um, and, um, but I mean, it's, it's, it to some degree has been helpful. I mean, as with the Netherlands experiencing floods so often in Chile, the experience of earthquakes so often has meant that actually it absolutely needed to, to make the, the construction of buildings which were able to withstand earthquakes. It was such a priority and they've created re- leading schools of, en- of engineering in identifying how they should do this. But, but in particular, they have a way of supervising construction of sort of ensuring that it's checked at the point where where you know the design is made as the point at, at, during the course of the building and they impose very tough fines on on any builder who whose structure would fall down um you know as as a result of an earthquake could expect very significant fines or could be sent to jail so they've and they've got people to respect the earthquakes happen so frequently everybody respects that this is 
absolutely fundamental to you know to the functioning of the society you 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 can't simply believe you're cutting corners and uh, you know the, the, that would be considered immoral to some degree and uh, you know they they have um yeah they've got situations now where um they had a huge earthquake i mean not not almost the same size as this giant earthquake off off the coast of japan in 2011 they had an earthquake in 2010 and um I mean, I know the casual the casualty rate from that earthquake was um, was less than than uh, an, an, yeah, an earthquake in in Italy the uh, the previous year, which which was about a thousand times smaller in terms of of its its energy, and, um, and it's, it's simply because they really have done a good job at actually mastering their their construction. And yeah, here again we have. It's sort of it's owned collectively. I mean, the whole country is sort of proud of this fact. It's actually something that um, all those who commission buildings, those who build buildings, they, 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 they sign up to. I think both of these are great examples of how it's not just enough to know what to do. You also have to make sure and enforce that people do it because it the, these kinds of behaviors that create lax structures or that create lax dikes in the terms of, uh, in terms of what's happened in the Netherlands, those are everybody's problem. It's not just one person's protection that fails. If a, if a building falls down, it's not the builder that gets killed. It's the people who are in the building or the people who are around the building at the time. Um, and I think both of these are really illustrative examples of how important it is to have the social impetus to really force people to do what we know is right, right? You can, you can have building codes in place and you can factually know how to build a building to withstand an earthquake, but you also have to make sure that people don't cut the corners, that people actually build the buildings to code, which in a lot of parts of the world is as much the struggle as getting the right building codes in place. Yes. No, I mean, it is absolutely the case. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, at, at success in this area, it, it needs to be collectively owned um, and, and people People have to see you know, that clearly there are sectors of the economy who who resist uh, some some sense of supervision or someone coming along to check on them. And actually, you you have to create enough government, if you like, to that can actually manage this process effectively. And that um, yeah, but because it's actually going to be to the benefit of everybody if if you can uh, if you can see if you can. Um, succeed at it. Robert, it's an excellent book and it's been a really fascinating uh, hour talking with you. Thank you so much for coming by the show. Okay, thank you. If you want to learn more about Robert Muirwood, his book, The Cure for Catastrophe, How We Can Stop Manufacturing Natural Disasters, or learn more about his ongoing work, we have links for you to click up on the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. 
You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 